All right. So I'm having to add a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, because if you watch my Instagram stories uh, or follow me on Instagram, then you will know that I originally recorded this podcast with Andy, who is uh, the artist at Notes to Strangers, along with the sex doctor. Um, And unfortunately, the day after we recorded the podcast, Andy found himself at the center of a social media exposure. And as a result of that, he has asked me not to include his parts in the podcast. Um, So I have had to edit out every part where he spoke. And as you can imagine, in a conversation between three people, there's lots of times where you're going, "Mm, oh, yeah, you know, little noises and whatever. So we've had to go through and even edit out those bits, which has led, I think, to the podcast sounding a bit weird at times. Uh, There are times where you can definitely hear that we've edited something out or where the conversation doesn't necessarily flow as well as it would have done if it had been left natural. So yeah, as you're listening to it, just keep that in mind that it's not the slickest podcast that you'll ever listen to. But uh, Karen's stuff was so valuable and I learned so much from it that there was no way that I wasn't going to um, put that stuff out. So I hope you enjoy. And welcome to La 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 Let Me Explain podcast with some incredible special guests this week. I've got the sex doctor, Karen Gurney. Hello. Hello. Can you tell everybody a little bit about what you do, Karen? Okay, so I'm a clinical psychologist and psychosexologist. And what that means is I spend my time between NHS, sexual health, HIV and sexual problem services doing work there and also working independently for the Havelock Clinic, which is a sexual problem service. And I'm basically doing all kinds of things. A lot of my time is spent doing sex therapy or therapy to do with anything about sex, sexual addiction, um, sexual assault, um, people concerned about the sex they're having as well as sexual problems. Um, I'm doing that with individuals and couples, or I'm spending time doing research on sex, teaching people around sex, sexuality, sexual problems. Um, And I have an Instagram account at The Sex Doctor where what I'm trying to do is translate the knowledge and the research about sex, what's normal, what you should expect, how to have better sex in a way that a lot of people can kind of digest and make use of. And I really love that. I think it's so important. And we had an interesting conversation just outside where you you said that, you you know, you can do so much within that therapeutic space. But then mm-hmm. when people step outside, they're still stuck with the stigmas and the myths and the taboos around sex. And That's so right. until we break down all of the barriers, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be much harder for people to really feel confident and comfortable and normal around their sex lives and sexuality. That's right. It's a it's an education issue and a changing kind of societal opinion about sex issue. And only that kind of societal change will make a difference to individual people's sexual lives and sexual problems, because it's those things that get played out in relationships, in sex and ultimately in the therapy room. So I'm really passionate about doing both the one-on-one work, but also trying to kind of spread better messages about sex, really. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do as well. I think together we could be a force to be reckoned with. (laughs) Uh, Right, so today we're doing the same kind of format that I do on my Insta Live. And I asked uh, for people to send in topics that they would like us to answer together. And I got hundreds. So I had to whittle them down to what I thought would be the most interesting. So we'll start with the first one. So it says, I need help. I'm not dating a fuckboy. I've done that 900 times. 
I'm just confused because the guy that I'm with is great and I feel content, but I don't feel all the butterflies that I felt when I was seeing the fuckboys. What is wrong with me? I think I'm happy, but I'm not sure if I'm getting the correct emotions. Am I settling? The thought of not being with him makes me sad, but I can't stop thinking that there might be a better fit for me out there. And she went on to say that she owns a house and has a master's degree and that he's a labourer and he lives with his mum. So what's the first thing that you're thinking when you hear that? The first thing that I'm thinking when I hear that is the butterflies don't necessarily come with the being treated badly bit. Like it's good to distinguish what the butterflies are about with the guys that she was dating before. Mm. Um, Is it that they were, you know, full of confidence? Is it that they uh, made her feel a certain way about herself when they did get in touch or when they, you know, were kind of dangling that carrot? Like, Mm. what is it about that that she thinks gave her butterflies? It's unlikely to be the being treated badly bit, Mm -hmm. but something else that came with that. So I think that's kind of worth looking at. And I was thinking about something that I heard you say recently as well, Leila, which was about sometimes it's good to trust your gut. Mm. And the fact that she's asking the question of whether she's settling does make me wonder a bit whether mm-hmm. there's there's something about this current relationship that maybe there isn't a spark between mm-hmm. him and her or perhaps that spark just hasn't fully developed yet I don't know how long they've been together because she doesn't say does she how mm-hmm. long they've been together no. um it's it's possible that that spark will come but also it is possible isn't it that she's settling for some reason mm-hmm. that we don't know of like I'm interested in how old is she? Is she feeling pressure to settle down? Is she someone that maybe wants kids? Is, are there reasons why perhaps her confidence in men has been depleted mm-hmm. by dating all of these guys before that have treated her badly? So it's like, I'll grab hold of this one. A safety net. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's it's only really her, I think, that knows the true answer to that. But Absolutely. I guess I would be keen to get her to to think about what it was about them that gave her that spark. Mm-hmm. Was it physical attraction? Was it yeah. their confidence? Was it something else? It's not being treated badly. Mm-hmm. That that gives you that. Yeah. I wonder if it's worth, I mean, how? where is the kind of, where do you draw the line at, at trying to keep making a spark happen with somebody who you, because it sounds like she likes him. Mm-hmm. And actually I recognise a lot of this, you know, <clears throat> the fact that she kind of went on to say, she owns a house and has a master's degree. He's a labourer and lives with his mum. I understand that sense of of not necessarily feeling like you're on the same page as somebody. And that's not about money or earnings or anything like that. Like my long-term relationship with my son's dad, when we got together, I was in uni uh, and he had a pretty low paid job. And so we were really like on equal terms. Uh, And then I graduated and was suddenly earning a lot more than him. And he never had the motivation to, to do any better. He was really happy to just stay in his very low paid retail job. And, and that really drew a big kind of, my life was going one way and his was staying in the same place. And no matter what I did, he never wanted to catch up to that. And that there was such a big barrier between us. And I always felt like I was missing out on something. I was missing out on, on somebody being able to give me more and help me grow more. So I wonder if that's kind of where it's coming from with her is that it's a bit of a stalemate. It's like, here we are. We're not going anywhere. Where can we go? You know, uh, mm. and I suppose he's living with his mum, which is not necessarily off-putting, especially in this day and age where it costs an absolute fortune to 
rent or buy. Um, but I wonder if it is that sense of just getting a bit stuck and a bit stale. In that case, I would be interested to, to find out from her, perhaps she can reflect on this herself. What is it that's important to her for a relationship long-term? Because for some people, a spark and by spark, I guess I mean like sexual chemistry. Mm. Um, she could mean something different by spark. For some people that's crucial and it's, yeah. it, it's um, essential for the longevity of their relationship. And it might be that that is the most important thing for her. It could be that what's most important is she wants someone to treat her well and to respect her and to treat her with kindness. And that mm. could be the thing you elevate highest. Or it could be that she wants someone that she can admire and look up to. And for some reason, she doesn't feel she's got that with him. Although it'd be mm. bizarre if she felt she had that with the other guys that were treating her badly. Yeah. But you know what I'm trying to say? You've, yeah. got to, you've got to look at your own, um, what's important to you. Yeah. And think about what are the things that I value most that I think in 10, 15, 20 years time will give me happiness in a relationship and it's those things I hold up highest. Because, you know, again, thinking about like what's out there in society, loads of ideas that, you know, it's important, that money is important, that people that earn well are important, that success is important. Is it really crucial to happiness? I mm. would say probably not. Mm. Or the success of a relationship? Probably not. But it might be clouding her judgment. Yeah. And she might be thinking, oh, I've got, I've not got this spark and he's doing this and maybe she's not valuing that for whatever reason. Mm. But are those things what's going to give her happiness? Because mm. you know what? This was the first thing that I sort of said to her when she DM'd me and she, she started the conversation. I was a bit like, could you be dissatisfied with monogamy? Is it, yep. would you prefer to be out there? Oh, yeah, like exactly as you say, are you not finished fucking around? Um, and, and that really could be that. But I think it's a combination of so many different things. And I, yeah. I wonder if, I, I mean, I personally believe that you shouldn't settle and that that exactly as you said at the beginning that sparky feeling that you get with fuck boys is not because they've been shitty to mm -hmm. you it's because there's something about that person it's all of that sort of stuff but you can find that i believe in somebody who's not a fuck boy you definitely can and so i i think that we shouldn't jump into relationships until we have somebody that fits the full spectrum they don't have to tick every single box and so therefore your boxes shouldn't say he has to have a house he has to have a car those, those things are bullshit but if your box is, I have to feel safe with this person, I have to feel respect, I have to feel that spark, I have to feel sexual passion. Yeah. Everybody has their own individual boxes. That's right. And in my experience of working with kind of couples or individuals much later on down the line, and obviously I work with a lot of people that are having troubles with sex and relationships as part of what I do, but I would say that not listening to those things at the beginning, mm. if a spark is important and you don't listen to that, it might well rear its head later on and can be quite difficult 10 or 15 years in to 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 feel um that sexual chemistry if you've never felt it yeah. to start off with yeah. and it's really fine if you don't and it's not important to you if other things are more important it's totally cool mm -hmm. but if it is important and you ignore it at the start it might well pop up later on yeah i think well, like what you said at the beginning karen is the fact that she's even reaching out to to me perhaps it, that is your signal that it's not enough you know, the, the yeah. fact that you're sitting there thinking, oh, is it enough? Well, it probably means it's not. Yeah, would it's you, possible. Would, would you yeah, agree? It's, it's possible. I mean, yeah, I guess there's one final thing that's on my mind about this, which is that there's something about um, the, the reinf like inconsistent reinforcement, like people that text you or contact you sometimes and then ignore you for ages. Mm. 
we know is more reinforcing than consistent um, texting and calling in the same way that a fruit machine is more addictive than something where every time you put money in, you get something back. Mm. Like sometimes getting it, sometimes not, is really reinforcing. And I've got that like in the back of my mind, wondering Mm. if she's always been with people where there's been that, is is he going to text? Is he not? Is he going to come around tonight? Is he not? I wonder whether there's something about this that like she's having to get used to things being a bit more predictable and predictable is lacking a bit of excitement for her possibly. Mm. There's another, you know, hypothesis there going on. Yeah, I'm a, a big fan in people treating their relationships as if they're not dead cert. And I think sometimes that's the problem with monogamy is that we kind of assume that once we've made that commitment to someone, whether it's marriage or whether it's not, and it's just long-term monogamy, that that kind of means that they're ours. And once we believe that they're ours and that they're always going to be there, we kind of stop trying and stop treating them as if they're like a precious thing that keeps yeah. coming back to us every day. So I think you're right about that. I think, I think that's a real vulnerability for a lot of couples is that you have to find a way to imagine that your partner could leave at any moment in the nicest possible yeah. way so that you show the best side of yourself. Yeah, don't them. become lazy in, yeah. and, and take people for granted. Yeah. That happens a lot in relationships. It does. I did an Insta post on this once about um, not giving your partner the scraps, mm. um, which is a phrase I sometimes use to talk about this idea that we show all the best sides of ourselves at work with our friends, even sometimes with strangers in cafes, like the interactions where we put the most effort in mm. are with people we don't really know. Yeah, And then sometimes if we might maybe live with our partner, we get home and we kind of grunt a bit and sit on the sofa and don't really you know Mm. give them the scraps and it's kind of hard to do but good to hold in mind one of the things that I think is really important to avoid on a first date is that whole conversation about what happened with your last ex and especially if it was really shit and they really fucked you up and now you don't trust anyone and all of that kind of shit I think that's really unnecessary I would suggest you like flip it around and instead of saying something that you don't want say the thing you want instead. So instead of going, I'm really needy, go, I really like to know that someone's there for me. Um, I'm I'm really like keen to like uh, hear from you. And I really like not that keen if don't you, you don't, think, how, don't flip you think it around. Sounds like I, I, I feel like I would be kind of like if a man's saying that to me, like it's really important to me that somebody's in touch all the time. They're really inconsistent. Mm. I don't know. I just feel like that's too much on a first date. What about be. if you said you're needy though? Yeah. I mean, I, that's why I'm just a bit like, don't, don't say any of it. Like, yeah, I'm not saying lie or hide incredibly important things, but what I do think is really important is that we um, don't like bring it all into the into the first date in a way that yeah, it might be too soon. I mean, I'm a I'm a kind of fan of the idea that those first few dates or months are the time when you don't really know someone well enough to know everything about them, and that's partly the function of lust, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you project onto them that all of the kind of perfect ideas that you have about who they are and that's partly why it's so intoxicating because you fall for them because you fall for the image in your mind not the reality of Mm. the person and then the reality of the person comes out a couple of months in and actually it can be great then you start to discover the realness of them that you were saying Andy yeah it's like layers and you but I, I'm, I'm not against people being a bit more honest oh, when no, they're dating. Oh, no, honesty is great. I think honesty is great. And especially if the honesty is about you saying, look, I'm not here for a relationship. I, 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 you know, it's, at most it will get to a, a consistent sexual relationship. That, never lie about that kind of stuff, what your intentions are. 
for dating. But I also don't necessarily think that you need to whack all your skeletons out of the closet at that first moment. I think it's important that you learn about each other in time. Mm. I think I think being yourself is straight up really important. And and I think your soulmate and the one is you know, when you find that person who when you do say on a first date, I'm 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 needy, I get really anxious, I'm a fucking bitch in the mornings, all of that stuff, the person who you're supposed to be with will go, Oh, I love that. You know, that fits in really well with me because I, I love to be wanted and I'm I'm really, you know, if you say all those things on a first date and it puts someone off, then they were never supposed to be your person in the first place. But I also think sometimes I'm not I also think sometimes you make yourself a bit vulnerable, um, especially as a woman, if you're kind of putting all this stuff out there uh, about past experiences, you, you know, somebody who who is an abusive partner, they're very clever and they're very calculating and they, they do know when, who are the right people to pick. A woman who's sitting there saying, you know, my last ex beat the shit out of me or was emotionally abusive. You know, somebody who might be a bit of a predator or an abusive per- person might be like, ah, cool, she's perfect to love yeah. bomb. So actually, I think that the conversation that we have just been having leads on to one of the forthcoming questions, which is somebody asked thoughts on swinging and does monogamy exist? The issue I have with monogamy is that monogamy is great if that's what you want. It doesn't work for everyone. It certainly exists, but whether it's successful the stats aren't that great, actually. Like Whether people can maintain monogamy over a long period of time, the stats aren't that great. But the problem I have with monogamy is that it's really the dominant social discourse. And because of that, a bit like heterosexuality, we just assume we are until mm. we make a choice other than that. And I think it's really good for people to question it and to think, is this actually what suits me? Is there something else that might suit me more? I think the fucked up thing about monogamy is that actually I, I recognise that, that actually it'd be quite nice when you're in a long-term relationship to, you know, if you did happen to just meet somebody hot at a bar, have a great fuck with them and then go back to your partner and that doesn't have to affect your partner in any way. But then from the other side, for me, if I thought that my partner was going out and having a great fuck without me. When it comes to thinking about consensual non-monogamy, opening up your relationship in some way. And of course, there's a huge spectrum, isn't there, Mm -hmm. of ways you can do that from attending parties together and agreeing that you won't do anything, you'll just go, to having separate separate sex with people, to polyamory where you have separate relationships. There's there's all kinds of ways of doing it. But the, the crucial factor is you have to talk about it and agree what the boundaries are because it's only then that it will work successfully. Mm -hmm. And I think Um, I work with lots of couples that are thinking about opening up or perhaps just have an open relationship. And that's, that's often the thing that um, uh, gives the clue as to whether it's going to work or not is how, how clear they are about what's okay and what isn't um, and how much they both agree with those boundaries. I think that's, that's part of it. I watched this uh, Louis Theroux documentary, Altered States, about polyamory. I haven't watched it yet. I've heard a lot about it. It's really interesting because I I don't know if that just happens to be the couples that they picked, but in every single couple that they picked, the woman was the dominant uh, factor within making the relationship polyamorous. Uh, And and in every single situation that the original husband wasn't, seemed to be allowing her to have an open relationship and then engaging in other relationships themselves because they didn't want to lose her. Um, And they felt that her going off and doing those things made her so happy that it brought something extra to the relationship that he could never give her. 
but there was never a real sense of everyone's in this together and we're all really happy for every single one of the male partners. There was just this bit of like, well, I have to agree to this or I'm going to lose her. I haven't seen it yet, but certainly I'm, I'm sometimes a bit, a bit disappointed when I see TV kind of depictions of open relationships or polyamory. Cause I think there's a bit of a subtext often, which is around showing the ones that are a bit sensationalist or mm. make good TV because it's awkward or it's not going to yeah. go well. And I think it does the kind of um, polyamorous or open relationship community a disservice because it's not like monogamy has got a great track record. Yeah. And it's a shame really, because yeah. like Wanderlust was a good example of that on BBC. I don't know if you saw it, mm. but it was about a, a heterosexual couple in a long-term relationship that weren't having great sex and they made a decision to open up their relationship. And it was great because it got people talking, but it was also a shame because they kind of didn't negotiate it well and it mm. all kind of went wrong. And I think it's on TV so little, these alternative ways of doing relationships that you kind of have a responsibility to show what can work. Sometimes we have an illusion that people are perfect, that relationships can be perfect, mm. that we'll never have a moment of dissatisfaction. I think you're right. I think that's, mm. that's not something we should aspire to. But I do think that there are relationships that happen easily for people yeah. and that um, there are relationships that require, feel like they require very little effort. I still think you should put in effort, but but they happen easily yeah. with very little conflict, that mm -hmm. sex can happen easily, that sex can stay good over time. I, I believe that. I see that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it comes back to that, that first um, um, yeah. person that we, we talked about, actually, that it's sometimes about knowing yourself first and knowing what's important to you mm -hmm. because if you pick somebody who values things that are, are very different to you there might always be conflict mm -hmm. um or if you pick someone that doesn't value something like kindness that mm. you value that there might be conflict do you know what i'm trying yeah. to say yeah mm. and some people enjoy the passion of it yeah but if you're someone who doesn't and yeah. you pick someone who does then that relationship could be is always going to be a struggle and and that's and that's the thing i think we do need to get away from this feeling that relationships are a struggle they're not they should actually be easy as you yeah. say and and I think it's worth working on them to to a certain extent if you find somebody that you really want to be with and and it is a struggle I don't think you should just give up I think you should you know do your best to work on it but I don't think you should fight to the death to the end no. it, it, you know with, with something that's just really not right for you well sometimes don't you think the irony of relationships is that until you find one that works for you, that goes easily and that is great, all of your experience to date is that relationships don't work. That's part of the thing, isn't it? They don't work until they do. Yeah. Every time they don't work, you it confirms your belief that relationships don't work. But, yeah. but actually, that is going to happen. They're not going to work yeah. until they do. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's until ironic. they're right, they're not right. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is that we spend so much time trying to make something right that's never going to be right that we end up missing out on on something. I think we're taught that being single is shit when actually being single and happy is much better than being in a relationship that's a massive struggle. <laughs> um, right, let's get on to, uh, did you want to say anything more about monogamy and swinging? No, nope, I'm, I'm good, let's move um, on. So the next question says, my first boyfriend and I were together for eight years from the age of 15. He was my first sexual partner but because he watched so much porn, his sexual expectations of me were unrealistic and I felt under a lot of pressure. I feel that this is a big issue for young people and I would love to hear it discussed. 
Well, this is something I'm majorly passionate about, which I think you know, Layla. So where do we start with this? I think, um, okay, so porn is not sex ed Mm -hmm. and should never be sex ed, Um, especially not free mainstream porn, which is is what young people have most access to. And we know that about a third of young people in the UK have seen porn by age 12 and 94% have seen it by the age of 14 and their mm. NSPCC stats. It's very difficult because um, the Make Love Not Porn TV um, site, which is a great site actually about real world sex, they have a tagline, um, pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And I think that's what the key is with all of this. There is, the world of porn is gigantic. Mm-hmm. It's like the world of TV. There is good TV that makes you feel good about yourself Mm -hmm. and the world. And there is TV that scares the hell out of you. And there is TV that's a bit badly made. And there's TV that's quite arty and porn is just the same. Unfortunately, mainstream porn, free porn, the porn that young people have easiest access to, we know is the type of porn that doesn't show um, sex, doesn't show women, doesn't actually even show men in a great light. Mm -hmm. And a recent study into the top top um, watched films from Pornhub um, that was in um, an academic journal showed that um, in that particular in those particular films, only eighteen percent of them showed female sexual pleasure as a representation of that film, wow. versus something like seventy eight percent showing male sexual pleasure. We won't even get on to the kind of misogyny and aggression that's in some of that type of porn. It's it's changing the way young people then think about sex. But that's not to say that I'm anti-porn. In fact, I'm very pro-porn. Mm. Just porn that is made ethically, mm-hmm. porn that shows diversity, porn that shows consent, porn that shows safe sex, porn that shows pleasure, porn that shows equality, mm-hmm. like the work of Erica Lust, for example, yeah. and other directors like her. Um, and I'm really passionate about it. I'm I'm actually um UK ambassador for Erica Lust's the porn conversation, oh, wow. which is um, a not-for-profit site designed to help parents and carers have conversations with young people about porn because they will be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. We can't stop that. And and actually, um, most of that exposure is accidental. Um, they have a, a little bit on their site where they show a young person typing in, like they're trying to type big fish into Google, mm-hmm. but the first thing that comes up is big tits. Big oh, cop. Wow. So if you just think about that accidental exposure, we we have to get literate at talking with young people about porn mm-hmm. and so that we we avoid situations like this where the learning about sex has come from. And and she says that he's watched too much porn. Mm-hmm. My I would imagine that actually it's not about the quantity that he's watched. It's, it's, it's more about watching. the quality. Yeah of what he's watched. Because, you know, there's no harm in watching porn for anybody. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter unless you're doing it eight hours a day and not taking toilet breaks. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, we have to be able to have conversations with young people. It's not something we can leave to schools. No. It has to happen. If you have children, you have to start young. Having you have these to give them that balance, don't you? And I, I was talking about this actually on my Insta Live the other day, which is that <clears throat> working with young people which I've done for a number of years. I started out in, in sexual health and relationships education. The porn that they have in their pockets on their phones is, I mean, unfiltered, uncensored, and it's actually often not even porn. It's not even Pornhub. 
or whatever produced porn, some of the porn that they have is some poor girl being filmed on Snapchat, basically being raped in, in a room by another, you know, three yeah. other young people. Um, but they're not seeing that as rape. They're not seeing that as a sexual assault. They're seeing it as some slag from their school who got banged by this boy and someone filmed it and now everybody's sharing it. And then that girl is in total you know, she's in exile and completely humiliated and they think it's all hilarious and let's find another girl to, to bang. Um, uh, and this is how their sexual journey is starting. And actually a lot of it is abuse. And it's not just the abuse of the young girl because, you know, those three boys who are in that room with her have maybe had to lose their virginity while standing there with, with two of their mates being filmed. That's not what they want. And that's not a, a positive or fantastic introduction to sex no, for them either all around these young people are actually a part of an, an abusive situation even if they're the ones who are kind of orchestrating it where has that come from when you're 14 15 years old so I think there's a really dangerous thing that's happening at the moment yeah. uh, and I think it needs to be controlled because as a result what's happening is young women are then just getting fucked you know, that, that people are going into losing their virginity situations with a hand around their neck getting banged from behind because this is what boys have seen. This is how sex goes. Yeah, and, it's, and it's interesting because um, the, the surveillance data into how we do sex and relationships that happens by um, Natal comes out every 10 years. It's a bit like the census for sex in the UK. And Nat, the latest Natal, Natal 3, that came out a couple of years ago, um, where they ask um, like 15,000 people between 18 and 80 in the UK, the kinds of things that happen to them during sex, STIs, unwanted pregnancies. But more recently, they ask about sexual function. And what we know now is that in the younger generations, anal sex as a standard part of a heterosexual experience is a really growing phenomenon. And there's two schools of thought about that. It could be that... Um, that's partly because anal sex is represented more as a standard sexual experience in porn and that that's where a lot of young people are learning about sex. Or perhaps it's that the younger generations are um, a bit more liberal mm -hmm. and are not stigmatising anal sex and that that's a good thing because it's about them kind of trying out new things that older generations are a bit more nervous about. But you have to wonder um, what the correlation is between the fact that a lot of mainstream porn will show anal sex as mm. as a standard Just part normal. of a sexual encounter. And there's certainly a lot of literature into heterosexual women's experience of anal sex, which is um, not necessarily that they feel entirely keen. It's something that they want to do, but there's a certain element of coercion or expectation that comes along with that. So it's a, it's a really tricky area because... We can't get evangelical about porn and we shouldn't because mm. porn is not a bad thing, mm. but we must get with the program because we have to know how to talk to young people about porn and we have to learn about things like filters. Yeah. NSPCC have a great thing on their website mm. to help parents to apply filters to mm. their devices at home, but you, you can't do much about mobile phones and you can't do much about mobile phones in school. If, I mean, if someone else shows it to them. Mm. And it can actually be really traumatizing for a young person to, to for their first images of sex to be yeah. something that someone's showing them that, that looks violent or degrading mm. or just that they don't exactly know what's going on. Now, I used to teach uh, at primary school level, but the the content of what we taught eight and 10 year olds was very different to what we were teaching 15 year olds. So it always started with a conversation about 
the parts of your body mm-hmm. and who, what, what is safe touching and what's not safe touching and who you can talk to. And, you know, so that's what the very young sex education is about. It's there is no conversation really about actual sex unless they ask, because the rule was always very much that if they're asking, then then they're ready to know. But again, you wouldn't, you know, you talk about special cuddles and things mm-hmm. like that rather than actual actual set current sex ed and obviously there's consultation going on at the moment about changing sre which is great sex ed is predominantly about avoiding infections in pregnancy which is not great and mm-hmm. doesn't teach you anything about good sex either just the absence of problems but i'm really passionate about yes we need to do better sex ed in schools and and we need to start younger but i really feel this is this is an issue for families yeah. this is something that is a parental responsibility to mm-hmm. start Right, as early on as you can do, teaching principles of yeah. pleasure and consent and yeah. respect. I think the lack of education links into the female orgasm gap and myths about it being hard to make women come. I mean, it's, there's a bit of a myth that women's orgasms are, are tricky and trickier than men's, but it's not actually true. Mm-hmm. Men and women masturbating can come in less than four minutes at the same rate. It's just the type of sex that women and men tend to have together isn't great for women. As about... Um, Six percent of women in the UK can't haven't yet had an orgasm on their own or with a partner, but um, that's not really the norm for most women. Most women, if they've tried to masturbate, can come on their own. Mm. Translating that into sex with a partner is often the tricky bit. If you're mm. having sex with a man, the type of sex you often end up having is sex that doesn't benefit your anatomy that well which I mean penetrative vaginal because, sex because there is no gap when it comes to lesbian sex so so f- female on female sex that women are coming at a normal rate firstly I think people don't really understand the female anatomy well enough and I think because of porn and because of lack of education people assume that the way to make a woman come is to just push something in and out of her vagina when actually there's only 20% of women that are going to be able to come from being penetrated internally 80% of women are going to need clitoral stimulation to come. Uh, and that generally doesn't happen when you're having penetrative sex, unless somebody's got their fingers or a toy or whatever on the clitoris. And, uh, and you know, I think the other thing is that women fake it far too often because they have this pressure on them to uh, please in the bedroom. Um, and also sometimes because we want to make it stop because we are just getting banged for 15 minutes, which is, you know, pounded She's not doing anything for us. So we have to fake an orgasm to make the man stop. And we don't want to hurt his feelings by just laying there. So the, the problem really is the way we see sex in society, because you only have to look at how we talk about virginity to see that we privilege penetration as mm. real sex in our society. And everything else is like a kind of, it's, it's called foreplay, which mm. is a word I hate and never use wanking someone off with your hand is sex mm. making someone come by touching the clitoris with your fingers is sex that's really interesting because for me the problem with foreplay is that it's privileging penetrative sex as the main event and everything else is like the starter mm. and it it's just it's it's not a great word for women because actually we know that for women their their highest level of sexual pleasure that they will get will be from either receiving oral sex or from someone using their fingers to stimulate their clitoris that's the type of sex that for women should be the sex that they would say is real sex yeah but it just so happens because we live in a patriarchal society Mm -hmm. that the type of sex we call real sex is penis and vagina sex which is the type of sex that men rate the highest when it comes to most reliably bringing them to orgasm so i think that 
you know, we, we talk about it, don't we? And you say, oh, people say, did you have sex with him? And they'll say, oh, we did everything but, don't they? Mm-hmm. You did have sex with him yeah. because you, you did a sexual act and yeah. you experienced pleasure and you might have had an orgasm. What 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 else is there to mm. be sex than it's those so things? True. But it's 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 interesting, really. I think that's something that we really could do with moving away from because it doesn't actually benefit heterosexual men either because it puts an awful lot of pressure on staying hard and on having to last, you know, Mm. having to, having to kind of delay when you come. And actually if we saw sex as about all types of other things, it doesn't matter whether you're hard or not. You can still have sex without being hard. It doesn't matter whether you've already come because your partner can still come 10 minutes after you've come. It's Mm -hmm. totally fine. So it doesn't really benefit anyone, that idea that penetration is what sex should be. But until men start having sex without their penis being touched, which is what women having sex without the clitoris is being touched would feel like, Mm -hmm. until that equality happens, I agree with you, like a lot of sex is about what happens in our minds because that's what's erotic. But you also have to have the right kind of physical stimulation Mm -hmm. and having sex without your clitoris being stimulated is like having sex without using your penis it's it's that that equivalent so i think um totally agree with you that it's psychologically mediated but there has to be like a basic of physical touch that feels nice right part of the problem is that we're not taught about female sexual pleasure um men or women or everyone in between Mm. (laughs) the non-binary population nobody is taught around um what the clitoris is nobody's even really given the right words people use vagina instead of vulva it's, yeah it's all a big mess actually and that's where it needs to start we come all the way back don't we mm-hmm. to sex education and the importance of teaching all genders about sexual pleasure so that they know from an early age mm-hmm. what gives pleasure but also to be really comfortable with our vulva labia mm-hmm. vagina all of those things because actually we it's not until you get to, you know, a certain age that you grab a mirror and you have a look at what your vagina looks like because you don't really see vulvas and vaginas and, and all of that. You know, a penis is out there, just hanging out there. So it, it's, you know, everybody knows what one looks like. Everybody knows which are the bits that feel the best. But with a, a woman, you actually have to get a mirror before you've ever actually even seen your own one. I don't think I looked at mine until I was about 18. And I was mm. like, what the fuck? Like, And then if it doesn't conform to what it looks like in porn standards. Women can come very paranoid and anxious about how it looks um, and smell and taste and all of those other things can lead to women not being relaxed enough in the bedroom to have, to even be able to achieve orgasm because they're thinking, oh, is my, do I look okay? Is yeah. this all right? Is he enjoying this? This next question flows with what we were saying actually a bit about <clears throat> the female orgasm gap and and how women are can be quite self-conscious about what their genitals look like. So this woman wrote in and she said, I hear a lot of men commenting on women's labia and saying how protruding vaginal lips means that a woman has a loose vagina and that she's had a lot of sex. I need this myth broken down. What do you, this is something I get a lot uh, uh, of messages about actually women feeling really worried that their vaginal, that their labia don't look normal. Um, you know, obviously you have the ones that are more tucked in, you have some that are hanging out uh, and they, there is a belief that men only find one labia look attractive. This, it's a really common concern that women have and we know there's been a rise in 
labiaplasty, which is plastic surgery to reduce the size of labia um, in the last kind of couple of decades. And women's concerns about how their vulva looks um, are not connected to problems with how their vulva functions, but all about, as you say, how they imagine they should look, which if you're a woman who doesn't have sex with women, or if you're a woman who doesn't work in an industry where you look at women's vulvas, like a, you know, GP practice nurse Mm. or work in sexual health where you see a lot of vulvas, the only vulvas you see close up are likely to be those that you'll see in mainstream porn where in a particular uh, part of the porn industry, at least vulvas are selected with very small uh, labia Mm -hmm. so that you, the so penetration is more visible at a close angle. Um, some types of porn, more ethical porn, shows variety in how vulvas appear as well as mm-hmm. a variety in all different things like body hair and um, breast size and body shape and, and you know, all those things. And it, it makes me really sad because so many women that I work with cannot enjoy sex because they're so worried about what their body looks like, what their vulva looks like. Um, is that and completely, their vulva looks completely normal. Is that completely not an issue in um, for lesbian women, do you think? I think all women are impacted by it, but lesbian women obviously see other women's vulvas, so mm. they see more diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, depends how many women you've had sex with, I guess. But that's why I think Instagram accounts like the Vulva Gallery are so important because they show such a a wide variety of what vulvas can look like. And I really encourage women to follow that account so that they can flood their social media feed. It's a bit awkward on the bus when people are like watching your phone (laughs) over your shoulder. In fact, that happens to me with my Instagram all the time because practically everyone I follow, it's like something really explicit or um, showing sex in some way. Um, But if you follow something like that and you're exposed to what normal vulvas look like, it's hard to hold on to that idea that yours is abnormal. Mm. And it's good to remember that your labia are part of your sexual anatomy and a bit of your sexual anatomy that can also feel pleasure. You know, if you'd, if you'd ended up being a boy in the womb, your labia would have turned into testicles. Mm. You know? And we don't necessarily ignore men's testicles as part of sex yeah. because they can you know, feel pleasure from having their testicles touched in a certain way. And your labia are the same. Don't do them a disservice. Don't try and write them out of your anatomy um, because they are a sexual organ Mm -hmm. that they also connect like at the top where the labia kind of come together is uh, the clitoral hood. Mm -hmm. So also light tugging on the labia can also indirectly stimulate the clitoris. So it's actually really sad that a lot of women are missing out on that element of that kind of sexual pleasure because of embarrassment about their labia and their vulva and, and how it looks. And actually... I think a lot of this is tied in really with slut shaming and controlling women. There's no shame in sex or there shouldn't be. And there shouldn't be any shame in enjoying sex and there shouldn't be any shame in having lots of sex. And slut shaming, that concept is all about you shouldn't be having as much sex as you're having or you shouldn't be enjoying it. That's Mm. where it, that's the trajectory of it, isn't it? It comes from a place of shame. Why shouldn't women be having tons of sex all the time? Why shouldn't anyone be? Why? What's the problem? Mm -hmm. It's fun. And it can be fun, depending on who you're doing it with it, but it should be fun. Why not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing is that we have to break down this feeling that women who want to have sex are, should have a label put on them in any way, shape or form. 
It's really fucked up. Do you know that's where the word nymphomania actually came from? It came from kind of early 19th century ideas that women who liked sex or wanted sex or masturbated or thought about sex more than their husbands, um, that was where the kind of psychiatric term nymphomania came from. And the whole, there's loads of stuff been written about that that's (laughs) fascinating around that happened at a similar time to the kind of women's movement and the suffragette movement. And it was around the time of, of the war and women were taking over more typically male roles. And there was a real fear that that women were somehow getting a bit out of control, becoming a bit too much like men. And then psychiatry came up with this idea of nymphomania, which was a form of social control that was essentially the start of slut shaming. Yeah. Because um, you're saying if you want to go, if you have sex like a man, you're mentally ill, basically. Yeah, or if you enjoy sex yeah. or if you masturbate. I mean, you were locked up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's absolutely fantastic, obviously, that the current narrative is that actually sex is great. And if you want to have sex, fantastic. And everybody should be doing it. But I also wonder where that leaves people who aren't that sexual or who identify as asexual. There has been a bit of a critique of the sex positivity movement in that vein that sex positivity is great but actually it implies that everyone should be having more of it and that actually for some people sex positivity is taking a step back yeah society shit isn't it um right so the next question says my boyfriend can only come when i'm on top and it's making me feel insecure okay this is a really common kind of issue that people um seek help about so um There's a couple of things to say about this. So the first is that it can be really helpful for all of us to consider what our conditions are for good sex. So the things that make sex good for us. And there are things that go on in our mind, like how hot the situation is or how we feel in relation to that person. Um, Or there can be things that go on in our bodies, like whether that touch is the kind of touch that works for us. Um, And there's other things that come into it, like how distracted we are by other worries, like what our body looks like, about whether we'll stay hard, about whether we'll get pregnant or get an STI. You know, that's not great for sex. So it's good to think about our conditions for good sex. And it may be for him that one of his conditions for good sex is that he likes to be able to see Mm -hmm. in a particular way and that her being on top is a way that he can get the visual stimulation that is most hot for him. And Mm -hmm. that's why he prefers to do it that way. So that's possible that it's just the scenario that for him works best. Yeah. Could be. guy, yeah. Or it could be like a belly button guy. I mean, yeah. Who knows? yeah. Um, the other alternative is that it's about the physical stimulation that he needs. So for some guys, just like for some women, um, it's easier to orgasm alone than it is with a partner. And we don't typically think of this as a male problem because we have this myth that it's women that struggle with orgasm and that for men it's really easy. But um, there's a substantial number of men who can only come in a particular way. And by particular way, I mean in a particular position, like on on their back. Mm-hmm. Or for some, it's like kneeling up. It can be, you know, unusual positions or with a particular particular physical stimulation, um, like, you know, the, the strength of the grip mm-hmm. or uh, the angle of the stroke or whatever it is. And sometimes that is difficult to recreate in Mm -hmm. penetrative sex. So it could be for him that the only way he can physically come is in that position. And that's, that's possible. It might be nothing to do with her. Mm. He's really enjoying it. He's really turned on, but physically the stimulation his penis needs works best in that position 
either because he needs to be on his back or because his penis is stimulated in a particular way in that position. He can't recreate it. It's it's 100% communication because I think, the, you know, it shouldn't make you feel insecure that he, he can only come wh- when you're on top. And I guess what's making her feel insecure is that he could be behind her or on top of her or all of those things and, and going at it for a while and nothing's happening for him. And so she's then thinking, oh, is my vagina inadequate because he's not able to come in any of these other positions. But I think you break it down perfectly, Karen, in that actually it's nothing to feel insecure about. That's just him. That's how it works for him. Mm-hmm. And communicate so that when you are in missionary or any other position, make sure that he understands that he's got to make you feel good while those things are happening because the fact, the absence of him coming is is making her feel like she's not doing doing well enough. But if he was saying, actually, this feels amazing, now get on top of me, then yeah. it might be easier for her to comprehend. And it does really come from, um, again, it's like what happens out there because there's not a strong narrative that it's hard for men to come. Mm. So when it happens, women feel worried about yeah. it. And actually the fact is everyone's bodies are different and everyone needs different things. And he needs that at the moment. I would say there are ways that you can, if he wants to, it's perfectly fine the way it's happening, if it's fine for both of them. And her insecurity isn't a reason they should change it. It's mm. a reason they should talk about it. And he can say, well, actually, it's just what works for me. But if they did want to change it, there are ways that you can do that. Um, you know, we all learn to come in a in, in a way that historically has been our journey to learning. So, you know, we learn to touch ourselves in a particular way. And um, what tends to happen with orgasms is that they kind of generalize over time. So once we start having them, our our brain kind of lays down new kind of neural pathways that help us to orgasm in different ways. So, you know, you might, you might find that when you first start off masturbating, you can only come in a particular position in a particular way. But actually the more that you do it, you find that you can alter that slightly and then your brain goes, oh, okay, this is still good. And then you can come in that way. The more that happens, the more likely it is that you can orgasm in lots of different ways. And that's just as true for men as it is for women, but it's usually a a problem. Women identify more than men, but you can modify it slightly just by very gradually mixing up the way you do it. So, you know, making very small changes to the position that they're in. Um, So he's still getting what he needs, but you know, he, they're on they're at a slightly different angle mm-hmm. or um they um they try it um with him kind of moving a little bit more rather than being static there's things that they can make small changes to just to see whether that's something that they're able to kind of generalize but we mustn't see it as a problem no it I, isn't. Don't, I don't think it's a problem um no, he might want to kind of mix it up a bit yeah. and that's fine but it isn't a problem and the problem is that she's worried about it just talking about it and being open about it and being conscious of your own needs and how they can be balanced out, you know, alongside your partners. That's yeah. Right. Next question. How do you cure vaginismus? Can I just say the word vaginismus might be one of the worst words I've, I've ever had to say in my life. It sounds, I think it's the mus. It sounds like it's gone a bit moldy or something. It's, it's a, a funny word, isn't it? Word. It's a funny word. It's actually it's not what, a word. What is vaginismus? So vaginismus, it's actually not a word that is used in, in kind of medical circles anymore for various reasons, which I won't go into, but it is a word that's used um, often and um, we still do use it informally because it's a good word to describe something. So it basically means the spasming of the pelvic floor muscles that make vaginal penetration difficult, uncomfortable or impossible. 
So that's what vaginismus means. The reason we don't use that word so much now in, in medical circles is that there are many other conditions that cause painful penetration that aren't vaginismus. And it's really difficult to distinguish between them, even from an examination. So there are words like vulvodynia, which you'll also hear, which is a chronic vulval pain. Um, there are ways you can tell them apart, but actually we know there's a massive crossover. So there's a, there's a new term for it, which is a huge mouthful. It's called genitopelvic pain disorder. I mean, no one's going to be using that down the pub. Mm. Um, so vaginismus is still a word that people often use. And um, the first thing to say about vaginismus is that, well, firstly, it's, it's really common. Um, it affects a lot of women. A lot of women have it um, before they're sexually active. Can it come, can it come and go? So if I'm finding sex really painful obviously if you're finding sex painful at, at any time that's not normal you shouldn't no, be feeling pain during sex and you you do need to go and seek help for that and if they've ruled out sexually transmitted infections or you know some kind of medical cause is, is vaginismus caused by a medical condition no, or is it psychological so the first thing to say is we first need to understand what makes sex comfortable or painful because there's a kind of a normal comfort and discomfort that's useful to know so um, penetration won't be comfortable if you're not turned on. It might not be comfortable if you're not wet and it won't be comfortable if you don't particularly want to have sex with that person or be in that situation. So that's a normal discomfort. doesn't mean you should put up with it. You certainly shouldn't, mm. but it doesn't mean that you have a condition. It means that you weren't ready for it. Your body didn't want it. You weren't, you, that wasn't something that you wanted to happen. So that's important to know. So what happens when we get turned on is that you get this increased blood flow to the vulva and the vagina that makes penetration feel more comfortable or perhaps pleasurable, maybe not orgasmic, but pleasurable. And obviously you get increased lubrication, although we might talk about that later on as well, because that varies quite considerably. So what happens with vaginismus is that um, we have a fear that penetration will be painful. And that fear usually comes from societal expectations that, that sex hurts. And that's a really common fear that women have before they're sexually active. In fact, show me a woman who doesn't expect her first time to hurt and I'll kind of give you a five, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe more, because actually that's a common concept. And so even that thought, it will hurt, creates the pelvic floor muscles to kind of tense up and that that creates pain. But then what happens is the next time you go to use a tampon or um, have a smear or have sex, you think, what if it hurts again? that fear then creates the tension which causes the pain. So it's a condition that is the complex interaction between the mind and the body. It's, it's something that can go away with the right treatment, which we'll come on to in a second. It doesn't usually come back because once you've managed to overcome it, then you feel differently about what penetration and what your body is. Is it therapy? Yeah. So the first thing is that anyone who's experiencing painful sex absolutely has to go and see a suitably qualified medical practitioner because there are so many things that can cause pain that if left untreated can be a real problem you can't assume that's what it is you need to go and get that checked out there are many sexual problems clinics in london that your gp can refer you to where you can see um, people like myself or doctors or physios that i work with that will be able to do a full assessment so that's important to note once we know what's going on if we think it is that then what happens is there is um, a, a range of treatment that I might do on my own with the woman or the couple or maybe one of my colleagues like a pelvic floor physiotherapist, we might do it in tandem. And 
basically it starts off with education about what happens to your body when you get turned on, about the fact that your vagina is a potential space, not an actual space. So if you go and look with a mirror, it looks tiny. It doesn't look able to accommodate a penis, but when you're turned on, when you're relaxed, it can accommodate lots of things, mm-hmm. you know, the size of a baby's head, obviously. Yeah. Um, so it starts off with information like that. And then you develop a kind of a, a step-like program with the person that you're working with, where you start off with what you feel comfortable with now, which for some women might only be having a look. And then you plan in small steps towards, towards where you want to be. And you mm. might use things like your fingers, you might use your partner's fingers, you might use sex toys of different sizes, you might use what's called vaginal trainers. Uh, you might end up thinking about a penis or a dildo, depending on the gender of your partner. And you, um, under your own kind of conditions of being turned on and being relaxed, you practice penetration under mm. these small guided steps. Um, eventually, so there is support out there then. So people definitely. shouldn't be embarrassed if they're not enjoying sex or having painful sex, because actually you can in the UK go to your GP, you can and get a referral. You can and you should. And it's unlikely to get better without you mm-hmm. doing that. So it's really important. And there's also some kind of informal um, support networks as well. So there's some, uh, a network called the Vaginismus Network that are on Twitter that have kind of monthly meetups and they have a, yeah. a really good kind of Twitter presence um, and some really good um, videos. Like there's one called Tightly Wound Film, which if you um, search for it on YouTube, it's a um, a film that was made over in the US about a woman's experience of vaginismus. That's so just a short animation, but things like that can really help people know that it's not just them. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something that people should and, and can get help with definitely. and it can get better over time. So we, 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 I think we've got to come to the end now because we've been going for a long time and I've still got questions left. Um, so I'm really sad that we're not getting through the, the last questions. Um, next time. Yeah. I mean, I have, I've really learned a lot today. I have to say you, you are, you come with so much knowledge, Karen. I mean, I always say that I'm the blind leading the blind and I think being on the podcast with you has evidently made me feel even more like that. Like, I I think I know what I'm talking about, but you really know what you're talking about. I want you here like every single day, actually, in my life. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us on. Of course. Bye.